Um, I'm going to do just a moment here, send the kids out. But before I do, I'd like to say a couple of things. And we can bring the lights up if you don't mind. Um, but before I send them out, I want to tell you something. Oftentimes, people don't know what goes on behind the scenes on a Sunday morning or what leads up to a Sunday morning. And last week was kind of a crazy week. We had the, the power go out on Thursday, and we had um, the water go out on Saturday leading up to a baptism. And then baptism, man, it was full in here. It was crazy in here. It was awesome and all kinds of celebration. But some things went on last week, I think, that were hit very well by our leadership staff. And I want to say thank you to them because last week on the worship time, we had a bunch of people sick. And you didn't even know it. It, it. it went absolutely flawlessly. And that's because of Kyle's leadership and all that he did. And then as we were heading all the kids out, we had people go, hey, so-and-so's not here. They're sick. So Bruce is like running back there to teach and has no idea what we're teaching on. Thankfully, it was on baptism of all great things as it was. So it worked out well. But nobody knew any better. Nobody knew any different. And it went excellent back there. The kids had a great time and learned so much. So I wanted to say, first of all, thank you to our kids team. And if you want to be a part of that kids team, please talk to Pastor Bruce. With that, I'm sending you kids out to go learn today. (laughs) Head on out as they do. I'm going to have the rest of you guys open up to a book of Ecclesiastes chapter for today, Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Some of you have asked when you walked in, why is there a ladder on the stage? Do I need to put it away? I appreciate your desire to serve in that way, but I'm actually going to use it today. So I'm going to actually set it up because today we are talking about Ecclesiastes chapter 4. And in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, it talks about a ladder. And you may not know it because it doesn't actually use the word, but we're going to talk about that today. Today's message is entitled, The Price of Success. The Price of Success. We're going to be going through the entire chapter, chapter 4 today, and in The Price of Success, there is so much found in that word. There's so much found in the word success, and it means so many different things to so many different people. What does it mean to succeed? Or, better question is, is what does it mean to fail? And who gets to define it? Who defines success? Who defines failure? Because it's kind of like the word normal. Normal has a very wide spectrum depending upon where you're at and who you hang out with. Because you might think you're normal and other people realize that you're not. And that's, that's the truth of success and failure as well. When I think about those questions, what does it mean to succeed? What does it mean to fail? I'm reminded of probably one of my favorite quotes. And it's by Francis Chan. And this is, says, this. It says, our greatest fear should not be of failure, but it is succeeding at things in life that don't really matter. Too often that's where we find ourselves. And I guess the question would be, even from that, is, is what really matters? And what doesn't really matter? And maybe that's how we define success, by knowing what matters and what does not. And even within that quote, there's a word in there that's called fear. Fear. Fear is one of those things, I think, that, that hold us back. And one of the biggest fears that we have, that people have, is the fear of failure. As a matter of fact, if you Google it, you'll find and put in just life fears for people. Most people put number one fear is the fear of failure. And in that, even you have to look and go, okay, well, there's also the fear of rejection, fear of change, fear of inadequacy, fear of loneliness, fear of time and the fear of vulnerability. But even in those ones I just read, I think each one of them have a thread of the fear of failure within them. 
Fear of failure. I want you to think about it this way. As we talk about success and the price of success, what if you come to the end of this life and end up being thought of and remembered as a failure? What if? If this life is all that you're living for and success is all that you want and you end up being a failure, that almost sounds pretty heavy and devastating. Probably my greatest fear is what John Piper writes about and that don't waste your life. I don't want to waste my life. I don't want my life to go without any legacy, without any impact on other people, even as Bill is talking. You know, I, I, like I said, I've got to go, go to lots of different mission trips and I don't know what impact I've made on certain people and what ripple effects are there that God has used because I was willing to step out, but maybe that's the same thing for you. Maybe you need to be willing to step out. The thing is, is that fear of the wasted life, the fear of being a failure, it's not a new fear. Because as we wrapped up Ecclesiastes chapter 3 last week, Solomon ended with a question. It was a question that he left unanswered. He said, for who can enable him to see what will happen after he dies? Or if you look at the message commentary, message translation, Eugene Peterson puts it this way, who knows if there's anything else to life? Who knows if there's anything else to life? It's like we're playing this big game of life. Do you remember that board game? The board game, life. In case you don't, I got one right here. All right? So we have the board game, life. If you remember it, you spun this wheel right here. And as you spun the wheel, you went through all of the different things in life. And you got married, you got a job, you had kids, and by the end, what was the goal? To win, right? To have the most money, to have the most stuff. That's what we're taught at from the very beginning. And we say, you know, how can we figure out how to win at that game of life? And how can we figure out how to win at this game of life? How do we win? That's our question. Can you really win at the game of life? Can you win at the game of life? And, and maybe we should ask a bigger question of who defines what a win is? And maybe it's the creator of the game. Maybe he's the one who determines what a win is. Because I'm not sure about you, but I like to change the rules of games so I can win. Does anybody here play Uno? There's no actual rules to Uno. It's whoever's house you're at who determines what the rules are. And we play that in our own game of life that we're going to change the rules so that we can win, but that's not how it works in the game of life. What does a win look like in this game? We have to ask ourselves that question. For most of us, it's this. It's climbing the ladder of success. It's each rung getting higher and higher. And that is how we win. And if we think that way, if that is you, let me ask you a question. Not that I haven't asked you 20 already, but this one is the one I think will sting a little bit. At what price are you paying to succeed? What are you giving up? Who are you giving up? Who are you destroying and trading in for to go up to the next rung of the ladder? Where do we find ourselves in that? You have to remember when it comes to the ladder of success, we're in the book of Ecclesiastes. And Solomon is literally on the top rung. And he's looking down on everyone who's trying to make their way up. 
He's looking at them and he's saying, everybody here is trying to play king of the mountain. We went from the game of life to the king of the mountain. Anybody play king of the mountain when they were in school? I, I grew up in Arizona, so we didn't have a snow pile like probably some of you did. We had a dirt pile or a sand pile. But either which way, it was a person on top was not going to be taken off. Or you're going to do everything you can to knock them down so you can become the king of the mountain. Well, Solomon was the king of the mountain and all these people were trying to make their way to the top. He's hanging out with people that would be considered important. And those important people are probably trying to use him in some way. And they're probably some of the most important people in the world. And he's watching them and he's watching them live and he knows what they're doing and he knows that what drives them and he knows the angles they're trying to take. And he says, no matter where you're at on that ladder, no matter if you are the king of your own little hill and your own little playground, Solomon says, you're going to discover something that nothing really satisfies. Nothing in this world really satisfies. He says that American dream, it's a lie. Or even more so, a nightmare. And when you view it under the sun, it's going to become more and more obvious that way. He says in trying to keep up with the Joneses, Sometimes we fail to understand the Joneses are not as happy and as content as you might think. And what are you going to end up with? So let's be clear. As Solomon is writing this, and as we looked at Ecclesiastes, he is not saying that we need to sit out on life. He's not saying, hey, hang out on the sidelines with no ambition and no dedication to work. He actually says it's okay for us to be discontent and to want to be better and to be driven to be better in your work, in your marriage, in your parenting, whatever it might be. But then he also drives home this harsh truth. I, I'm realizing that as I look over here, you guys can't see me through a ladder, so I apologize. I didn't think about that before. As he drives home this harsh truth, he's saying, guys, we're just waiting. We're, we're, we're just waiting to consume life but nothing's really good. We, we always want to get to that next rung on that ladder. And he describes these problematic human behaviors, our dysfunction, if you want to call it that, that contribute to this heavy burden and, and the struggles of life. He says we need to understand that discontent's okay, but sometimes we like to mix discontent with envy. And when you mix discontent and envy, it's like a match with gasoline. When you mix the two together, you're going to have issues. As a matter of fact, um, just a few years ago, in the name of social justice, there was a discontent push to make changes. But when that discontent push mixed with envy, envy ended up destroying entire towns. Because that envy pushes our discontentment to destroy what others have just because they have it and you don't. And that's not what Solomon's jonesing for here. He says here actually in chapter 4, there's a danger in that thinking. There's a danger in living like the world. He observed five characteristics. Five characteristics of the world system. We'll call them five rungs on our ladder. Five rungs on our ladder that, that really that people lean on they depend on, they climb on for worldly success. And the thing that they need to understand is that these rungs are ugly. And the worst part is if we're taught when we're young. We are taught when we're young. So if you have your Bibles open to Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 1, we're going to read the first three verses and we're going to kind of break down each one of these sections and look at these five characteristics of the world system. Verse 1 says this, Again, I observed all the acts of oppression, 
being done under the sun. Look at the tears of those who are oppressed. They have no one to comfort them. Power is with those who oppress them. They have no one to comfort them. So, I commended the dead who have already died more than the living who are still alive. But better than either of them is the one who has not yet existed, who has not seen the evil activity that is done under the sun. Now, since we're on a roll with some games that I played as a kid, I'm going to continue that thinking. With Life and King of the Mountain, I want to see how some of these games that we are taught as a kid fit into these rungs of the ladder as we move our way on up. So our first thing, our first rung of the ladder is oppression. Oppression. Our first step is oppression. That's what he's talking about. And our first game actually is represented by sorry sorry now it's an interesting game maybe you've played sorry in your lifetime maybe you remember it but in playing sorry there's something we we aren't you're not sorry the object of the game is not to be sorry the object of the game is to get ahead by knocking others off the board and knocking them back down to the bottom rung you go back to home base and we smile about it we're not sorry well, we, we want that to happen. Why? Because we took the lead. Most people are competitors and don't like to lose. I am one of those people. It doesn't matter what the situation is. Now, my birthday was on Thursday, and uh, Christy set up for our family to go bowling. Bowling is... Anybody in here bowler? I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings before I say what I say next. Okay, you got some bowlers back there in the back. Don't listen to this part. Um... Bowling is really not that great of a sport. I figure if it's sponsored by Motel 6 and you can be drunk while doing it, it's really not that great. And in it, uh, we took the kids bowling. My little ones, they had the bumpers up. And in Dale, I passed on my genes of competitiveness onto him. And he's got his little six-pound ball and he's trying to chuck it down. It's hitting every bumper all the way down, all the way down. And... Somehow, some way, it actually split all of the pins that were in there. And he's like, dang it! And I went, whoa, who did you learn that from? That wasn't from me. I don't, I don't say that. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Bless him. You know, the, the whole thing. And in it, I started laughing. And I'm like, I got down in his face and I said, hey, buddy, just want to let you know. If there's one thing it's okay not to be good at, bowling is it. All right? It's okay. It it truly is okay. I mean, but the thing is, you have to have that winner-take-all mindset in this world or you're going to, at best, be in second place. And if you know what Ricky Bobby says about second place, second place is the first loser. That's right. And so you don't want that. And in the business world, you see it often. You have the haves and you have the have-nots. And it seems like the haves use the have-nots to take advantage and keep going. That is this oppression. I mean, look at the advertising of credit card companies. They aim at college students. You know why I got my first credit card? In college. I went to a Phoenix Cardinals game at the time, and they had a little booth set up going, hey, you can get an MBNA credit card with the Packers logo on it. I'm like, oh, yeah. And you even get a free beach towel. Oh. 
I was really excited about that. Little did they tell me there was also a 19% tag on every purchase I made. They went with that beach towel to pay for that beach towel. I didn't know that. Nobody ever explained that to me. And you know what I did? I'm like, oh, this is easy. This is easy. And then you get the bill. And you're locked in. As a matter of fact, uh, we, we were looking at uh, bringing Camden, my oldest son, and his uh, fiance out here before they get married to have something here at the, at the church because they're getting married in Delaware. I assume most of you aren't traveling with us for that one. So uh, we wanted to have them out here so you guys can meet them and say hi to them and so on and so forth. So I'm looking at Southwest. Well, Southwest has a big thing across the top. It says, get 65,000 points if you sign up for the credit card today. And I'm like, 65,000? That's, that's like six flights. That's not too bad. Then I looked, it was a $69 annual fee and it was a 30% interest rate. 30% interest rate. And I was like, that's what they do. But the thing is, is as you look at it, you go, man, we, you get locked in and you get enslaved. And the same is true for most loan companies. It doesn't matter if it's cars or houses or payday loans. Dave Ramsey, who does Financial Peace University, he says it this way. You might think you're getting a deal, but the truth is, is that your name's not on the side of the ballparks or the side of the giant skyscrapers, but you're paying for it. That, that's the truth of the matter. But we want to get up the ladder. And how do you get up the ladder unless you have? And the oppressors know that. They're going to play on that fear. And they're going to sell us that lie that this is how you win. So Solomon says oppression is how it happens. And that oppression is everywhere. If you go back to last week, you were talking about it being in the halls of justice, in the political realm, and political arena, exploitation and oppression, seemingly innocent people being oppressed by power-hungry officials. Solomon observed what they did. They wept, he said. But there was no one there to comfort them. No one stood with them. The oppressors had all the power, and they knew it. They knew they could do something about it, but they chose not to. And they didn't care. They didn't care who they hurt. And the interesting part here is what Solomon says. says, the oppressors also had no one to comfort them. You're like, well, why do they need comfort? Well, the truth is, is that nobody was around them that they could trust. There was nobody around them because when you live by the sword, you know what? You die by the sword. When you're in a dog-eat-dog world and you're a dog, you better be careful. If you're going to cut corners and compromise to get where you are, that's going to leave you vulnerable, which was one of those fears again. And that's the big issue that comes in them. You try and take them out and take out their king. Spend lots of energy outmaneuvering and outsmarting them. Now I'm going to describe some friends of mine that may be you and a sibling of yours because I think all siblings fall into this, but these two, they are the ones who, as I grew up, set the tone for me. Their names were Danny and Adam. And Danny and Adam, they were the house that you wanted to hang out at because they had an Atari. And then eventually they got a Nintendo. And if you're into G.I. Joe, they had the aircraft carrier as well as the F-15 Tomcat. This was the rich kid's house. And we went over and we'd hang out with Danny and Adam. Well, Danny it was the younger brother. Adam was the older brother. Adam was much more athletic and he could do just about anything. We played a lot of sports. We played tackle football on the asphalt, not recommending that, but this is what we did. We weren't wise children, but in it all, we would play sports all the time and he would always beat his younger brother. 
They were always on separate teams, and they would always poke and, and, and really jab at each other. Well, Danny, while he wasn't the most athletic, he was the kid that could do just about any game before gamers were cool. And he would do them well. He probably grew up to be a computer programmer. I lost touch with him, but that, that's this, the kind of mind that he had. He had a wit, and the problem with the wit is that sometimes you outwit your brother and then you use that in defense of not being as physical. But when you do that, the physical brother does what? He whoops you. That's right. And so that happened a lot and the older brother would get grounded and then we wouldn't get to hang out at their house anymore. And so it was, it was kind of this big, huge circle. But Danny was always in his brother's head. He was always up in there and he would drop some sick burns and we'd be like, oh, you know, that, that, that was our mentality and we knew what was going to come next. It was the physical part of it all. But while he might not win the fight, he would always win the war of the mind. Well, the war of the mind is what's talked about here in verse four. Look what it says again, that all labor and all skillful work is due to one person's jealousy of another. I got in your head and I'm pushing you to do what's next. I got in your head jealousy, envy, the desire to appear, at least in your own mind or in the minds of others, to be better than the other. That's what drove the competition. It's across the board. It doesn't matter if you're white collar. It doesn't matter if you're blue collar. It doesn't matter if you're in sports, if you're in school. It's all about beating the next guy. But again, it goes back to our question. At what purpose and at what price? For what purpose and at what price? Solomon basically says this rat race rivalry is going to end in disappointment. It's all futile, a pursuit of the wind, he says. He says this world's game also has a big issue with this, and that is it brings no rest. No rest. And he brings up three different people, two extreme participants, one on each side, and then one who kind of falls right in the middle. The first one is it's the guy, the fool, he says, who folds his arms, folds his hands. I can't win. I'm not going to try. And you know what? I'm just going to quit working and quit the game. So in that, what happens? Well, he dies mentally first, and then he dies physically. That's what it talks about when he says he's eating his own flesh. He's starving to death because he isn't doing anything. He's not, he's not working. Then you have on the other side, the overachieving, got their hands in everything versus folding your hands and doing nothing. He's doing everything, known by all the people that matter, and also knowing all the people who matter. He's basically what we might call a workaholic. It has the appearance of success, but guess what a workaholic does? Burns out, dies mentally, dies physically. He's saying you have two opposites, but the same result. Then you have this person in the middle that's running the race at their own pace. Nobody's gotten into their head. Nobody's pushing them to, to quit or pushing them harder to, to work at a higher price. His motivation isn't envy-driven. He's not driven by jealousy. His heart's in the right place, and he works for the right reason. That is to glorify God in all that he does. He says, I'm going to know what's important. I'm going to invest my time wisely. As a matter of fact, he says, he had one handful of rest, which shows a balance of one handful of work. There's a balance that is in there. We have to find that balance unlike the other two, the rest and the work. And you know what it is to find that balance? It's a mind game. And it is a fierce competition in between these six inches that are right here to see that you do it right. That leads us on to rung number three, found in verses seven and eight. It says, again, I saw futility under the sun. There's a person without a companion, without even a son or a brother, and though there is no end to all of his struggles, his eyes are still not content. 
with riches. Who am I struggling for, he asks, and depriving myself of good things. This too is futile, a miserable task. So after reading this, you might know what our next rung is. It is greed. And what game goes best with greed? Monopoly, good job. Well done, everybody. So we have ourselves Monopoly. Monopoly, Monopoly, Monopoly. There were two games in my house as I grew up that we would play into the wee hours of the morning. Both were about dominating and both were about having building an empire. One was risk and the other one is Monopoly. Now, if you've played Monopoly, you know it's never enough just to have Boardwalk and Park Place. There's people who play that way and they're dumb, okay? But... You don't want just those two in your possession. You want that whole side of the board. You want the blues and the green. If you can work around the corner into the reds and the oranges, you got it. But you don't stop there because you got to build houses and you got to build hotels and then you got to take over everybody else's property because you've robbed them blind down that whole side of the block. That is what... I, do I sound competitive when I talk like that? Okay. I, I just didn't know. Yeah. So the end goal though, in my mind, is to crush your opponent to leave them with nothing. It goes back to our oppression, if you want to call it that. But basically, I want to have it all, and I want to have it all to myself. But if you stop and think about it, think about what we did just a few weeks ago as we talked about our Christmas movies. And we had A Christmas Carol with Scrooge, and we had um, It's a Wonderful Life with Potter. Both of them were miserable misers. Both of them just wanted to get Money. They wanted to crush everybody else. And those people, and I like to say those people, because sometimes we fall into that category, but those people, they have an irrational drive for more riches. And Solomon, as he's describing it, takes it to an extreme case, saying they're not even doing it for their own family. They don't have anybody. They have no descendants, no sons, no brothers, no spouses, none of this. They're doing it just because it's all about status. The toys, the houses, the parties, the attention, the status... I can never have too much and I can never have new enough. Life is all about this constant chasing and this constant next rung up the ladder. Well, what's the big issue here? All the other ones seem to have had it. When we were playing this world's game, Solomon says this. He says, you're never content. There's no contentment. And there's a price that many don't see until it's too late. If you drive yourself so hard you give up what really matters in life. Remember going back to our original question, our original quote, what really matters? And they've given that up so they could have status. Just to live in more luxury or whatever the case might be. Solomon's like, hey dude, slow down. Enjoy life. Otherwise you're going to come to the end and be miserable. Miserable. And that's some of the same fears that we mentioned up front. What are we afraid of? failing and being miserable and vulnerable, all of those things. So then the next rung is the next rung higher. It's rung number four. And rung number four is found in verses nine through 12 where it says this, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their efforts. For if either falls, his companion can lift him up. But pity the one who falls without another one to lift him up. Also, if two lie down together, they can keep warm. But how can one person alone keep warm? If someone overpowers one person, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. Our rung number four in the world system is isolation. 
isolation. Because once you've gotten this high on the ladder, you know what? Nobody wants to play with you anymore. Because you've used and abused, you've oppressed, you have done all the things to try and get everything for yourself, and, and now nobody wants to hang out with you anyway. Nobody wants to play with you anymore, and there's a good chance that you don't want to play with them either. You prefer being all by yourself. You want to isolate yourself. And what game would best describe an isolation all by yourself? Solitaire. You guys are so good at this game. So we have ourselves solitaire. And as we look at solitaire, maybe you play it with a deck of cards. Maybe you're that Windows person that still plays it on your computer and when you get it, it goes dum, 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 and all the cards like undo and they bounce across your screen. Maybe you play it on your phone. Maybe you're playing it on your phone right now because I'm just that boring to you. I don't have any idea. But the truth of the matter is, when you win, guess what? Nobody cares. Because you're by yourself. You're not like, hey, high five. Yes, I win. Nobody cares. But it's a way to isolate ourselves. And let me tell you, isolation is risky. It's risky. And the reason why is because it leaves you vulnerable. But it also is what Solomon says here, the reason why we want companionship. And that is this, a good reward for your efforts, what he says in the first verses there. I've seen this passage used in wedding ceremonies. As a matter of fact, Christy and I used it in ours. But it's not primarily about marriage. And it's not primarily even about friendship. This is about working together with people for a better outcome. It's about working with people. The problem is, in the world system, there can only be one top dog. There can be only one king of the mountain. And everyone else is out to get you. Everyone else is out to get you. It's so crazy. Uh, Christy and I had to do a psychological evaluation, which is probably necessary for me most times. But we had to do it for the adoption. And we had to answer 567 true-false questions for the psychological evaluation. But I swear to you, 50 of them were true or false. Somebody's out to get you. And I'm like... Who's answering true on that? I don't want to probably hang out with them. That's just a little on the weird side. But the truth is, when you isolate yourself, that's where you find yourself. People are out to get me. People are out to take my stuff. Well, There's a good re reward for our efforts when we're together, and we're not worried about that part. Second one, he says, help in times of difficulty. Help in times of difficulty. We all have our blind spots. We all have our times where we slip and fall. I'm not sure about you. I like to watch sports. But one of the things I've noticed a lot in team sports lately, and maybe you'll even notice it when, they, when they're playing this afternoon if you watch the game, teammates are running over to help up the one who's been knocked down. They're running over there. And I actually read a thing that, that some teams are actually now creating a post-game award that they're giving to the person who helped up the most people. We're built to help each other up. But if there's nobody there, then what? Who's going to help you up when you fall? And then there's also the comfort in times of need. Now, this statement talks about lying down on somebody. I didn't figure I'd get that specific, but here's what it's saying in the general sense. The general sense is, is that there's going to be a time when you need somebody else to help you out in this cold world. But the truth is, is that without somebody, this world can be a lonely place. That's why we emphasize connection groups so much. That's why we emphasize so much of this being a, a family and, and a connection in that way with our family relationship. The last thing is, is that he says, you, you have somebody who's going to protect you in times of danger. Who's got your back? 
or you think somebody's out to get you. Then he throws at the end that foundational third party to build your relationship and your lives on that makes things so much better. Just going to let you know that's God. The world talks about claiming this relationship or claiming this ladder. But the big issue is they say there's no relationships, no companionship, no, no connection. And it's risky because even if you were winning, are you? Are you really winning? And if you do win, kind of goes back to that solitary mentality. Who cares? Who cares? That takes us to our top rung, our final rung on the chapter of this ladder to worldly success. And it's found in verses 13 through 16. It says these words, Better is a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer pays attention to warnings. For he came from prison to be king. Even though he was born poor in his kingdom, I saw all the living who move about under the sun follow the second youth who succeeds him. There's no limit to all the people who were before him, yet those who come after later will not rejoice in him. This too is futile, a pursuit of the wind. Our final one is, is if you're standing on the very top up here, instability. Instability. And I thought the best way to describe instability, and we're talking about being at the top of the ladder, would be our final game, and that would be shoots and ladders. Because that fits. Shoots and ladders. What's the whole idea of the shoots and ladders? To climb the ladder to get to the top. The rest of it is, is be careful when you roll those dice. Be careful when you spin that wheel because you might just hit a shoot and everything comes tumbling down. Everything comes tumbling down. And the truth really is, is this. It takes way less time to go down than it did to go up. I'm sorry. Yeah, way less time to go down than it does to go up. You fall fast. John Ortberg had a book I read a couple of years ago, actually lots of years ago now, but it was called this, When the Game is Over, It All Goes Back in the Box. When the game is over, it all goes back in the box because maybe you do make it to the top, but when the game's over, again, who cares? You're just going to go in a box. What are we living for? The truth is you get to the top and that's it. Or you fall all down. Because when life happens, we also have to remember life also ends. The big issue of this, of playing this world's game, is there is no prolonged duration. There is no continuality. There is no longevity. There always is going to be another king of the hill. There's always going to be another top dog. And you will be forgotten. You will be replaced. You know, it's not going to take long for your workplace to start posting position to replace you. They might even talk about it at your funeral. Hey, <laughs> I hope we get somebody that's not like... It's entirely possible. It's entirely possible you see that. And, you know, that's only if you make it that far, too. Because there's plenty of other times people have outlived their usefulness and the jobs that they're doing. And they either let you keep the position just because they're nice to you, or they say, you're not worthy and you're not needed. And you get let go. In this world... It's a game. It's a system that we're easily forgotten and we easily lose, easily replaced, and it's a cycle that's been around since the beginning. And it still happens today. So here's the thing. Solomon's given us all the viewpoints of the world and that game of life. And basically, to summarize it all from that world perspective, even if you think you win, you lose. That's what he says. It's closing prayer. Right? I mean, that... that that's it. He said, that, there's no more chapter. So what do we do? 
Well, the good thing is Ecclesiastes isn't the only book of the Bible. And the good thing is, is that there are some answers that, that Jesus gives us and Paul gives us as he lives out Jesus' teachings. And I was going to end there, but I thought, man, maybe we should have some good news before we leave. That way people want to come back next week. So let's look at that real quick because as Solomon points out the world's game, we have to remember that in the midst of, of oppression, rivalry, greed, isolation, and instability, in the midst of having no comfort or rest or contentment or relationships or duration, God gives us something different. And he gives us something different in Christ. Because when you're in Christ, you have a different goal in mind and you have a different victory. So when it comes to no, uh, no comfort and oppression, hear the words of Christ in John 14, 16, when he says this, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another counselor. Depending upon what version you're reading, it also says comforter. To be with you forever. 2 Corinthians 1, 3, and 4 takes it to the next step. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the Father's of mercies and God of all comfort. He comforts us in all of our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are also in any kind of affliction through the comfort we ourselves receive from God. Whatever the difficulty is, whatever grief, whatever situation you might be finding yourself in, the great thing is, is God's help is immediately available. As Christ's followers, we are not oppressed. We are enabled to be used for God's glory. That's where we find ourselves. It's not that we don't cry the tears or feel the pain or go through the suffering, but we have the Holy Spirit there. And the, His presence comforts us and gives us God's perspective and wisdom to help us at least understand in a limited way what's happening to us. And we have the presence of the Holy Spirit that equips us to comfort others in the midst of it as well. When it comes to rivalry, that rat race rivalry and the lack of rest, listen to what Christ says in Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, because I am lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The same Jesus, the same Jesus who proved himself Lord over the forces of nature when he was standing on the, on the boat of the Sea of Galilee in that huge storm, he can also calm our hearts and rescue us from the rat race mentality. I love in that passage where he says, learn from me. Learn from him. And the next couple words say this, who is lowly and humble at heart. You know what the world tells you? Don't be lowly and don't be humble or else you're going to be in second place at best. He says, learn from me. Learn from me. Remember, it's not about you. This life, this game, it's not about you. Greed and lack of contentment. Acts 20, 33 through 35. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourself know that I worked with my own hands to support myself and those who are with me. In every way, I've shown you that it is necessary to help the weak by laboring like this and to remember the words of the Lord Jesus because he said, it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. Now, pastors like to focus on that last little passage, but the rest of it leading up to it is pretty important pretty important because he says you need to realize you can't just not be greedy well I don't want to be greedy well you actually have to act out the opposite which is generosity generosity be generous don't live to accumulate for yourself live to give of yourself that's what he's saying here what does the Bible say about isolation and no real relationships what was a passage we talked about plenty of times over the last four years because there's been times of isolation in that. 
Hebrews 10, 23 through 25, let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering since he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to provoke love and good works. Not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage each other all the more as you see the day approaching. Back in the day, there was a song by Jeff Moore in the distance. Anybody remember them if you grew up in the Christian music scene? It was called, I've Got a Friend Like You. And it said, the Lone Ranger and Tonto, I promise I won't sing it, by the way. The Lone Ranger and Tonto, Laurel and Hardy. Batman and Robin, it was Snoopy and Charlie. Friends through thick and thin, friends to the very end. I think we could agree that you've got a friend in me. That's how it is for you and me. Take the biblical part, Ruth and Naomi. Elijah and Elisha, David and Jonathan. The list goes on and on and on. There's something about that connection. It happens in the church, and that's the reason why we're called to make disciples. Do you understand what discipleship is? It is a growing relationship together in Christ as we grow closer to Christ. That is what we're doing. We're pouring into people to see that happen. It takes two to make a thing go right. I used Rob Bates last week. I figured I'd use it again this week. Finally, instability and duration. Instability and duration. Matthew chapter 7. Jesus gives us a very clear command. Build your house on the rock. Put your ladder on a firm foundation. Build towards Christ. Move towards Christ. Not on the garbage heap of the world, but on Him and His Word. Our calling is not to be man-pleasers. It's not to climb the ladder of success that is unstable. We're called to build our lives on Christ, and that would make success look different. Because our success as Christians is to see the success being life change and growth towards Christ, kingdom growth, and God's glory. If you want to know how to truly win at this life, that's it. Bring God the glory and grow His kingdom. Let's pray together. Father, thank You who, for all that You do. And thank You for what You are to each and every one of us. Thank You for saving us from this rat race. But yet we still get stuck in it. Mentally, we still find ourselves there. God, give us the strength. Give us the wisdom. Give us the ability to overcome and fight the battles that are inside those six inches inside of our head. He says, no, this, this is what I have to do. No, no, we have to do what you've called us to do, and that is to live for you, to grow your kingdom, and bring you glory. May that be the, the call of our lives even as we leave this place today. God, if there's anybody in here that doesn't know that, doesn't know you, that's just stuck right in the middle of that rat race, may they come today and have an opportunity to pray and discuss and talk about how you can change life and show them what it really means to win. Pray it all in your name, Lord. Amen.